Hello and welcome to another Innovation Forum podcast. My name is Toby Webb and delighted that joining me in this podcast is Alan McClay, who is the CEO of the Better Cotton Initiative. So welcome to the podcast, Alan. How are you today? Hello, Toby. Very well, thank you. I hope you are too. I'm delighted to be here and delighted to be part of the Innovation Forum. Well, thanks for joining us. As you know, cotton is something that we spend a lot of time on in Innovation Forum. We run our conferences on it. We have our Sustainable Apparel Barometer. We haven't spoken before, so it's sort of interesting to find out where BCI is. In fact, you're not BCI anymore. You're just Better Cotton. Is that right? We're still BCI, but we call ourselves Better Cotton. Well picked up. We've just gone through a rebranding exercise, and I think the terms are recognisable. Acronyms, when you can spell them out, are always better, more impactful. So now we're going to talk about ourselves as Better Cotton. So, Alan, for those who aren't familiar, our listeners, I mean, a lot of them will be, Give us the brief lowdown on Better Cotton. Where's it come from? Where are you at at the moment? Okay, it's a great story. Better Cotton was founded in 2009. We're just 12 years old, but it germinated from some experiments three or four years before then, started by the WWF with some pioneering corporates. Uh, I'm going to miss some out, but I'll name IKEA, Adidas, Gap, Levi's, and apologize to any I've forgotten. What the WWF had was an economist called, he stood around, Jason Clay, absolute visionary, who gave you this theory of market transformation, where if you focus on any of these verticals that mainly with raw materials, but also some marine products, and you really want to bring sustainable change to the production, because we are only at production level, you can address consumers, but there's billions of them, or you can address the producers, and there's hundreds of millions of them, or you can address the narrow funnel of companies that actually do the supply chain, and there's only a few hundred, and something like they estimate that in each vertical between three and 800 companies really account for 70% of a market. And so their idea, and this is what's brilliant about it, is they want to engage those three or 400 companies or 500 or 800, which include the retailers and brands, obviously, to get them to commit to sustainable production. And that's enough to leverage to bring transformation at field level. What's really interesting about this is that it was a hypothesis. It was a theory. And with better cotton, with cotton and with a few other products, four or five other products, this has proved absolutely right. And 15 years down the road, we can see a lot of interest that this theory has panned out and demonstrated and and really delivered on its promise. To such an extent that today, Petrocon or its equivalent, because we have benchmark partners, accounts for about 23% of global cotton production. So that's scale. Almost a quarter of any vertical is scaling, according to any term. This does involve quite a few brands. We have, I think, 260 or 270 brand members who cover, in turn, a whole number of faces. So maybe 400 or 500 brands that are triggering this production at field level. And we work only at farm level. What we do is we have a standard and we provide capacity building thanks to our brands and thanks to some public donors to deliver better agricultural practices in terms of sustainability. What do these better agricultural practices mean? I mean, I look at some of your numbers in your most recent announcement about your bold target to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 2030 in the industry, which is an impressive ambition. But I also look at some of the performance stats and you know, I guess a cynic might say, making things 10 or 20% better on a farm, that might be good for a retailer to have a better cotton label or logo to reassure consumers. But is that really sustainability? I know that's a really good question, and it goes to the core of, of what better cotton stands for. And it's an issue we should be discussing, an issue of principle that we should be discussing in the industry anyway. 
The point about the visionary design, which I mentioned, is that it was from the beginning intended to reach high volumes relatively quickly, and it's done that. Part of our efforts for the first 12 years have been to drive scale. When you deliver incremental change of 10 or 20%, such as you mentioned, over a few hundred or a few thousand production sites, you're not really making a huge change, except you're learning how to change, but you're not making a huge change. But when you deliver incremental change over several million farmers, then the overall effect is much more massive. And if you couple that with the principle, one of the main principles about better cotton, which is one of our USPs, I believe, is, is continuous improvement, is that there's a kind of a ratchet effect. You've got this incremental improvement that year after year cannot go back or should not go back. Of course, there are, you know, this is agriculture, so there are seesaws. You're delivering continuous improvement over time, and eventually this incremental change becomes massive change. And that's the theory. Part of the theory is that eventually the whole market will tip over into more sustainable production. We haven't yet reached that tipping point, but that's what we're aiming for. So this is why you've gone for the name better rather than sustainable. Both of them are journeys, but sustainability is often viewed by some people as a sort of nirvana that we will get to at some point, whereas for other people, it's a, it's a continuous journey. The term better means that you can perhaps not be seen to overclaim. Is that right? That is part of it, but it, there's more to it than that. The fact is that we would all love to only eat and dress ourselves with 100% organic produce. But the fact also is that you've got tens of millions of smallholders around the world who are responsible for a huge amount of the agriculture that we consume, who are not going to switch to organic overnight. We've just got some research in just recently, and despite all the best efforts of everything we've done, we can see that still 40% of farmer households are living under the poverty line. And we're facing a hierarchy of poverty, which is another story. I'll get back into a bit more detail about that in a minute. But the enormous scale of transformation that is needed means that you have to go incrementally because you're not going to be able to switch it all overnight. So if we can make sure that we're doing improvements uh, systematically and across a wide range of geographies, yes, it perhaps isn't fast enough, or it perhaps could be faster, but we've already got a huge amount of energy and a coalition of hundreds of thousands of people and organizations working for this. And I think we've created a dynamic. What's the level of ambition then? I mean, looking at your 2019, 20 season stats in India, 10% less water, the farmers using less cotton, 10% less water, 13% fewer synthetic fertilizers, 23% fewer pesticides, that's not bad, 7% more organic fertilizer. The pesticides one is massive because cotton's the world's largest user of pesticides, I think, as an industry. But where are those numbers going to be in five years' time? I mean, are you able to say, right, we're going to get to 30% less water and 28% fewer synthetic fertilizers and 50% fewer pesticides? How do you manage that? Because that starts to look like real progress then for those who might criticize an organization for only making 10 or 20% gains at the moment. More of the same, and we haven't actually set the targets yet, but it's a really good question because we're shifting the base. We're going to continue to monitor and measure those results in comparison with control groups, or if we don't have enough space for control groups, because in some areas we, there are none left, we'll do it with longitudinal cohort analysis. But we're going to continue to measure those parameters. We're shifting our scale and we're shifting our emphasis now. We've just launched a new strategy, which is going to take us to 2030. And that is going to look at five target areas. And we're going to spend this year, 2022, to exactly define where we want to be on those target areas. And those target areas are usual blend. There's a little bit of environmental, there's a little bit of social. 
start with greenhouse gas. We've actually already set the target for that, as you mentioned it, it's 50% reduction per tonne of lint produced by 2030. We also want to look at concrete progress in pesticides, as you say, a high um, factor in cotton production. We're looking at women's empowerment. We're looking at decent work and livelihood. And we're looking at soil health. And you may well say, well, what about biodiversity? And what about water? All of those are actually included in those five target areas. Those are the directions that we've agreed with our multi-stakeholders. It's very important to understand that Better Cotton is a multi-stakeholder coalition. It's not just a little organization. There are you know, hundreds of thousands of organizations involved in this. And that multi-stakeholder coalition has agreed on these five target areas to carry us to, to 2030. Here's the other thing. We are determined to now focus everything, to harness all of our resources and converge on delivering impact. I mentioned scale earlier. It's true that we have been driving impact at scale for the first 12 years. Now we really want to drive impact. We've got the scale, we've got the leverage, we have momentum, we have some experience. The industry continues to want to invest in more sustainable production. And so we want to aim now for impact. Let's talk about this from a perspective of a farmer for a minute. I remember looking at some target numbers that BCI, BC had a few years ago. It was something like 6 million farmers by the end of 2020 or something like that. It was a big number. And I thought, wow, how do we know that those farmers are actually doing that stuff? I mean, what's the reporting tracking mechanism for that? Because those numbers are enormous. And the amount of money in your most recent press release, you know, raised and so on, it's not that much money for that many farmers. So how does the monitoring verification system work? How do we know that those farmers have done those things when there's so many of them? Okay, you put your finger on another interesting and productive area of work for us. We do have, obviously, a monitoring and evaluation system and a verification system. It's robust. It follows the principles of sustainability standards generally. You know, we're a member of ICEAL. But there's no doubt there must be, you know, there's cracks, there must be gaps, there must be things falling through cracks. What we want to do now with the 2030 strategy is start closing those gaps, becoming more demanding, but also investing more. I could give you figures about how much funds are invested per farmer. And there's a figure that exists there. And it's probably too low because we've been driving for scale and we need to increase that investment per farmer. But I'd hesitate to give a target saying we're going to double it or triple it because you want to notice this after the fact rather than say, I'm going to invest this much because the, uh, the funds will get, dis- will get diverted if we don't make sure that we're not changing things at the ground level. But on the verification system, it's very interesting that no doubt it is imperfect and no doubt there is a lot more we can do. But the echoes we get from the people in the field and the people in the supply chain who are at the coalface, they're on the front line. Some of them do a lot of other sustainability initiatives as well. And they keep telling us, well, you know, we all know that Better Cotton's got the most rigorous verification out there. And this, I'm not going to get into any kind of issue about how good others are or we are, but it's very reassuring for us to know that people look out because they know that Better Cotton is going to be coming and verifying and they'd better make sure that things are up to scratch. But we want to increase that and we want to work with our partners so that they can deliver even more. We realise more resources are needed. You can't visit every farm, surely. No one's got that capacity. That would cost huge amounts of money. So how many farms do get visited out of those large numbers? What's the sort of average? Over a period of three to five years. 
But you're right. It is a method of sampling, but it's an industry-recognized one. And I think we do stick to best practice as far as that is concerned. It's also part of the capacity building because we make sure that people, that the farms are organized. We don't speak to individual farmers. Our partners don't speak to individual farmers because we work through partners. But we organize the farmers in groups of so-called production units with a lead farmer that can represent and be the ambassador and be the relay. And there's a whole sort of hierarchy of, there's a sort of scalable system to ensure that it's as effective as possible. But yes, no, you're, you're right. We don't speak to 2.3 million farmers individually, but we have a system that helps us, reassures us that we've got some relatively confident about the amount of coverage we can achieve. And of course, we can do more. And right now, we do want to do more. This is the point about the 2030 strategy, is that we're going to go further exactly in that direction. So will your local partners be in touch with every farmer? I'm just trying to work out what it looks like from a farmer point of view, given there's so many of them. Do they have some sort of contact with a local partner? We have something like 70, I mean, it varies all the time, 70 to 80 partners who in turn have an army, a small army of what we call field facilitators. And the field facilitators have a direct link with the lead farmers in the production units. And so it, it sort of scales down that way. Will the field facilitators have spoken to every single farmer in their unit? We have group classes and they, they get organized so that the capacity building can be layered and scaled out that way. We do have farmer lists as well. Now, how reliable those farmer lists are probably not as reliable as they should be. And we're, in fact, it's something we're working on. In theory, we've got the system to make sure that all the farmers are reached. So the 23% figure on pesticides, for example, that's basically done on a sample of farmers, and then you sort of extrapolate across the base because you can't visit every farm and track every drop of pesticide used. And we need to monitor that data very, very closely. There's a considerable amount of work making sure the data is reliable. And we have to actually take some data out because it's, we know it's not reliable. So sample sizes are, are probably I mean, less demonstrable than we'd like them to be. But, you know, this is improving all the time. As I say, we've been going 12 years and we're learning. We're a learning organization and we're learning how to improve this and our working with our partners, our implementing partners are absolutely critical link in the chain here to make sure that they can use technology. Technology is incredible how fast it changes. Obviously, there's no smartphone penetration to be worth using at that level, but there are digital support systems that can help. And we're using that. And that has changed in 12 years already. Oh, it's, it's incredible. We're doing a webinar soon about technologies and innovations in soil carbon measurement, and whether or not there could be a kind of standardized business approach on smallholder farms. And the research... And results from that, please, because we need that. We're holding a discussion about it. And we've got one of our people's been working on it. It's a fascinating area, just looking at all the different technologies, whether a collaborative brand approach for deployment will deliver the more standardized measurements that we need. So it's a fascinating area. And I appreciate there's a lot of factors for you guys. But let me ask you about organic then, you know, I hear some rumblings in the apparel sector, people saying, oh, BCI, BC, it's kind of being pushed aside by some brands because it's not sexy enough for consumers. They don't know what it means and they like organic. So we're brand X or brand Y, I've been told, is going organic. But of course, I've also been told they're not prepared to pay the premium. And we've seen a huge amount of fraud in organic, particularly in India in the last couple of years. And I just wonder what your views are on the consumer side of things and where the trends are and what your members are telling you that consumers want to buy into. Because organic is much easier to sell to a consumer than 
better cotton, isn't it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And we envy organic for that because better cotton is actually a very complex system to start explaining. And if you don't understand it, then you're not going to really rate it at its real worth. And unfortunately, people just don't have the time to get into understanding the intricacies. So you're right. The fact that organic is totally understandable immediately gives it this incredible edge in consumer markets. And we all know that the capacity for organic is limited precisely because no one wants to pay the premium. And that's an issue that everybody's wrestling with. Some people in the past, particularly in the past, a bit less now, people have tried to pit organics against better cotton. And I want to move beyond that because to us, that's irrelevant. We are thrilled if other sustainability initiatives deliver more sustainable, even totally sustainable cotton production. It's good for everyone. It's good for sustainability. It's good for the market. We're not in competition here. We all want to be working together. I think we're talking about the shift we were describing earlier. You know, have things moved on in 20 years or not? Well, they have. The stakeholders, rightly, some of our corporates, but also some civil society are being more demanding now about exactly what can be delivered. And it seems that organic has got to be something we aspire to more closely. As I say, we're not going to reach this overnight, but we need to be able to aspire to it more closely. And one of the ways that we can help show that we're going closer towards organic is to make sure that a better system of traceability is available. So I don't know if you know, this is one of the complexities of better cotton. We work on a system of mass balance. It's a really difficult one for people to get their head around, although it's quite a simple principle. And I think mass balance probably it's never going to go away because all cotton is effectively done on mass balance or conventional cotton as well. I think there's room for more traceability. We've just launched a traceability program, well, actually about a year ago already, but it's going to take time to be able to deliver real pilots and real abilities. And I think that it's safe to say that within you know a few years, maybe as quickly as two, three years, maybe a bit longer, there are going to be segments of the cotton vertical that will be fully traceable, but only segments. And it's not going to be the whole market because the cost is very high, as you say. The fraud issues in organic didn't just come in the last two years. They've always had issues with fraud because it's very costly to put in a a system in place with which you can have absolute confidence. Now, technology today has drastically changed that picture. Confidence in traceability is now within reach. The biggest gap being between farm and gin and gin and the producers. But the rest of the supply chain can really be locked in, even if it's small scale. At production level, it's still very difficult, but it's happening. Things are changing very quickly. So that's going to be, I think, the way that organic and better cotton is converse. But you're right to mention price, the extra cost, the, the premium on delivering a reliable organic and a reliable traceability system is very high. Is there a lack of understanding of the importance of the onward supply chain beyond the farm? We've been doing some research work with Cotton Connect. I think it's one of your partners. And you know, one of the things we've uncovered is also in the report we did on smallholders a year or so ago, is that everyone's focused on the farmer. And actually, there's a huge amount of value in the rest of the supply chain that isn't really studied terribly. Do you think there are opportunities there to help deliver efficiencies through transparency that could benefit the farmer? I don't know if I could answer that straightforwardly. I would just say that everybody is focused on the farmer. You're right. But the farmer remains the weakest link and the one that's most under the poverty line, despite all of this attention. And another principle of Advent Cotton is we try to work with the market and not distort it. And interestingly, when you do that, you realize that premiums do start popping up all over the place. But the premiums never pop up at farm level. It's always further down the supply chain. And this supply chain is enormously long and complex and opaque. 
and it's not deliberately opaque, it's just the way it's organized, much more long and complex than most food chains. And as a result, there are a whole series of entrenched interests and livelihoods at stake. So it's very difficult to actually take a wholesale brush and sweep this into sustainability. I put myself in a retailer and brand shoes. The farmer is only one element in a very complex chain that's going to need a lot of attention. So, yeah, I don't know that it's really realistic to be able to change that system. What we need to do is find the way to stop this boom and bust agricultural economy, which is still, years later, still weighing so heavily on the livelihood of farmers. So a lot of attention is paid to farmers, but I think we need to redirect it so that it actually delivers. Yeah. Now, I was wondering if there's, in some cases, so many middlemen or middle people, as we should call them these days, that it's delivering inefficiencies um, because there's just too many people inserting themselves in the value chain. You know, I suppose it's perhaps a naive idea to posit that maybe transparency and traceability enables us to remove some of that dead wood and focus on delivering more for farmers. But I, I do appreciate it is a very complex chain once it's left the farm. I don't think it's naive. I think you need change. But unfortunately, change will cause pain. You know, those intermediaries, those middle people, they also have to earn a living. If you take that living away from them, if you disintermediate them, then they're going to need to find an alternative. It is very complex. You know, there's unintended consequences at every stage. Now, there's no doubt a supply chain could be more efficient. But if it has reached this stage of complexity, it's probably because the market has generated it, has needed it to find that kind of efficiency. Why is it so complex? Because arbitrage is needed for each stage in that supply chain to make sure they can deliver quality at the lowest cost, you know, like any economic sort of equation. But yes, you're right about the intermediate. You're right, it could be more efficient, but it's not going to be just one switch. You can't just disintermediate people without thinking about how you're going to compensate for it. Okay, a couple more questions to finish off. I want to ask you about the sort of future strategy for Better Cotton. You're going to announce some targets. I assume you're going to be out there in forums like ours, being a bit more in the game, so to speak, communications-wise, which I think is, is required to get your message across. What is going to be your pitch to brands? Is it going to be put our name on your cotton, or do you want to sit further behind the scenes when it comes to visibility? I'm just, you know, given that you're going to have all these new targets. We have a fairly well-developed and well-honed claims framework now for brands, and we absolutely want to be part of the brand strategy. We realize, you know, 12 years ago, as I say, mass balance wasn't an issue. It was what the brands wanted. Actually, even two years ago, they still wanted it because it's affordable. Now, of course, they realize they want more than just mass balance. They want to be able to get product claims. And so we're working towards that. But we absolutely cannot work without the brands. We have to be part of that picture. They are the lever in the whole system. To get back to the 2030 strategy, how are we going to do this? Impact is everything. If we can deliver impact, and this is what, after all, we were constituted for, then that is the return for the brands. The brands want to be able to say, our purchases are delivering tangible, positive change at field level. That is our ultimate goal, if you like. We want to be able, but the brands, ultimately, we can't do it today, but ultimately, we want the brands to be able to say, to give clothes, to sell clothes with a story. That requires traceability, but until we can get to the traceability, we we need to at least provide the story, and we need to provide the story with not just conviction, but reliable, rock-solid results. And that's why I say impact is everything. We're focusing all of our efforts over the next 10 years, at least until 2030, on delivering impact. Impact is everything. Delivering impact, by the way, all of this is in alignment with the SDGs and, and, and the rest of the world, really. So I think this, this convergence also, we can't do this alone.
we need to work together as an industry. We need to work together as initiatives. We need to collaborate. We need to avoid duplication. There's so much duplication and inefficiency in that system. So impact and collaboration. Well, what about the R word, regenerative? No conversation or press release is complete without the word regenerative in it somewhere, but I don't see it very prominently in your approach. Why is that? It's been meshed in with, with our standard from the beginning, and we didn't actually call it regenerative. Don't get me wrong, I think the regenerative movement is, is brilliant, and I think it's really going to make a change, because it's one of those concepts that people can latch on to easily and, and help deliver, drive and support. We do already mesh in regenerative agriculture, and we are going to continue to strengthen that with our five target areas on soil health and pesticides and carbon. At the moment, things like mulching and, and cover cropping and, and a number of other techniques, those are already meshed in. You can't generalize. One of the things we've learned is that we do have a global standard, but by gosh, you have to have local adaptation each and every time, because if you try and just generalize it, you're going to fail. So where some countries, you might need this version of regenerative agriculture in, in other areas or even sub-areas or sub-regions, you're going to need a different version. As this concept gets defined more closely, we want to work with it. But it's definitely part of the process and it's a great lever for change. The big debate is between the dogmatists and those perhaps looking for scale is, does regenerative have to be organic? And I'm guessing your answer to that question is no. It would be nice, wouldn't it? It's unrealistic to think that it will be organic. The whole point is that we can't switch this overnight so in order to get there as fast as possible and the drive is to get you know to become sustainable the drive is to become sustainable we realize now there's an urgency well the world realizes there's an urgency cop 26 had a lot to do with that so we have to improve we have to accelerate we have to put more investment into it and fortunately i think the world is, is now cognizant of this but we have to think about what's realistic we have to be very ambitious let's not have any illusions about the impossible We'll get there because everybody's working together. A final question on technology, uh, now that I think of it. Obviously, GM cotton has its place. It has its niche in the market. And there are those that love it and those that hate it. I'm not getting into GM here, but I wanted to ask you about gene editing. Has that come up in your conversations? Because that seems like a very different thing, which has been painted as the same. But given it's not transgenic, it is very yes. different from GM. And for something like cotton, I would have thought there'd be phenomenal potential there to edit uh, I, the genome of cotton to make it more drought or heat resistant to lower the need for inputs. I think you're right. And I think that this is, you know, it's not new. This progress has happened before. As far as GM is concerned, where we stand is we're more subject to the existing market because there are some things that we have to live with. And the fact is that it's very difficult to estimate exactly how many small farmers there are in cotton. But let's say, let's just say it's 100 million around worldwide. You know, well, at least two thirds of them and possibly as many as four fifths of them have no choice but to use GM. So if we as an initiative decided to turn our nose up at GM and say we're not going to deal with this, then we would basically be ruling out at least two thirds of the world's farmers from any hope of progress. That is why we are GM neutral. As far as gene splicing and, and editing is concerned, we're neutral, but not because we don't think it's a good idea, not because we don't think we can. It's probably because we, we need to get there. We haven't actually reached that stage yet. But it's going to be coming because we need to be talking to uh, all the organizations that are behind that. And they're not really part of the round table yet, but they will be. That's also going to be in our 2030 strategy. Alan, thank you so much for your time today. I've thrown some pretty tough questions at you. Much appreciate your willingness to have a frank and honest discussion about the challenges and opportunities of cotton. So Alan McClay, CEO of Better Cotton, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Toby.